Working Class Audio is brought to you by Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Lauten Audio, Focal Monitors, and Gearsluts.com. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 155. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 155 you're listening to, coming at you from Lafayette, California. Yeah, where the hell is Lafayette, California? To be honest with you, when I first moved to the Bay Area, I had no idea that Lafayette, California even existed. Anyways, it's about 10 miles east of Oakland, California, which I know you can find on a map because, of course, that is on the other side of the Bay Bridge, from San Francisco. So you go San Francisco, go through the Bay Bridge. Uh, then you're in Oakland, and then uh, you get on Highway 24, make your way through the Caldecott Tunnel, and pass through the city of Arenda first, and then boom, there's Lafayette. Small town, yep. Good town to raise kids in, for sure, but I, I probably never would have moved here if it weren't for the good schools, because, uh, yeah, it's just not exactly a hotbed of music and recording. <laughs> Not to disrespect Lafayette, but anyways, here we are today, session 155. My guest today is Andrew Maury, uh, who is an American record producer and audio engineer, mixing engineer as well. Uh, he's based in Brooklyn, New York. Yeah, Brooklyn, New York. And uh, and he's worked with folks like Sean Mendez, Ra Ra Riot, Louis Del Mar, Grace Mitchell, Strange Names, Post Malone, Panama Wedding. A long time ago, this is this is kind of going back about 10 years, he uh, had a great experience working alongside Chris Walla, working on a Tegan and Sarah record over at Sound City in Los Angeles. And I think that experience, as you'll listen to in our interview, was really quite inspiring for him. So 10 years later, and many records later, and a growing career, he is kicking ass. So uh, we get to speak with Andrew today here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Hey, you know, we've been talking a lot about uh, health things, diet things. I got to tell you, I'm feeling great lately. I've been doing this like three-mile walk uh, about two to three times a week around the, uh, the, the reservoir we have in town. It's been really, I got to say, it's been great. At first, it was really hard. Uh, I don't know, three miles walking for somebody who just doesn't really do a whole lot of exercise is really tough. But after continuous walking... Man, it's just it. Uh, I crave it now, and it's strange. My diet is changing. My uh, my cravings are changing. And case in point, today I just I got through the walk, and I didn't really eat much breakfast. I had a smoothie and a cup of coffee, and that's about it. And I had this insatiable craving for sushi. And I knew the sushi restaurants weren't open. It was too early in the morning, so. I decided to go to Whole Paycheck or Whole Pit or Whole Foods as uh, as it's properly called, and go get some grocery store sushi and just yeah that just did it for me. So there that is. There's my health tip for the day: do a three mile walk and then go eat some grocery store sushi, some overpriced grocery store sushi at that. It was good, I have to admit. But anyways, uh, on to other things. Nam 2018 coming up. That's right. Uh, I did get my pass, uh, a press pass, no doubt, and uh, I will be there. So if you're going to be there and you see me, as I always say, come up, say hi, you know, don't be shy. Just come up and let's chat. I'm told this year that the audio portion is going to be in a separate 
area as the musical instruments and all the other stuff. So that's going to be an interesting, um, I don't know, experiment. Uh, I kind of like that idea. And then when I want to, I can go out and uh, go roam the drum area, which is like going into the the deep, deep, dark jungle of uh, musical instruments. And then I seek shelter back in the pro audio area. Anyways, I'll be at NAMM 25th through the 28th. That's a Thursday through a Sunday. I'll be there all four days and uh, look forward to seeing you there. If you're going, remember, it's not open to the general public, so don't go buy a ticket to uh, Anaheim or, or go buy, don't go buy an airplane ticket and then show up and be uh, heartbroken that you can't get in. So make sure that you secure a pass first uh, through a manufacturer, through press, through whatever. Do that before you head on over there. But uh, there it is, NAM 2018. And be sure and stop on over to uaudio.com. They are, of course, doing all kinds of holiday uh, promotions for plugins. And if you already own UA gear, then this is a, a great thing to check out if you're looking to bolster up your uh, your arsenal of plugins from them. Uh, they are, of course, still carrying on with the uh, promotion where you buy an Apollo rack, you get a free U82 satellite. That's going to go until the end of the month. We are in the month of December now, 2017. So uh, December 31st, 2017 is the cutoff date. You'll get a U82 satellite octo or quad DSP accelerator when you get an Apollo 8, an Apollo 8P, or an Apollo 16, or even the uh, the Apollo Firewire, the original. So check that out. Also, stop on over to uh, gearsluts.com. Stop on over and see the Audio Life subform that we sponsor. Lots of continued discussion of what we talk about here on Working Class Audio. So it's only appropriate that we sponsor it. So, hey, this is a cool thing that uh, I've just recently seen. It's there's a company, what are they called? Flock Technologies. Yeah, that's right. So flocktechnologies.com. They have this new patch bay that they're uh, coming out with. I don't know if it's even out. It's kind of cool. Um, it's a digitally controlled analog patch base. So basically, long story short, you have a 1U rack box with a bunch of uh, DB25 connections on the back, plugs in via USB to your computer, and uh, looks like there's a piece of software that helps you create any kind of routing that you want. And then um, it's got some, it's got uh, phantom power on board that you can uh, turn on and off. And then of course it will allow for phantom power coming from an external box to pass through it. It's pretty interesting, check it out. I'll put it in the show notes. Don't know much about it. So I'm just telling you what I'm seeing here on the website. 32 channels of onboard phantom, phantom power is available. Hmm. Uh, 64-point I.O. patch bay, 100% transparent analog circuitry. Yeah, it could be cool. Some of the highlights here, what does it say? No patch cables required, 32 channels of onboard, uh, onboard 48 volts that I talked about, phantom power. Uh, completely software-driven, create, store, and recall routings. Advanced signal multing capabilities. Set up complex routing in seconds. Safeguard notifications, front panel, combo jacks, DB25 connections, software and firmware updates. Huh. This is cool for for anybody who wants to uh, incorporate any of their outboard gear. Yeah, I'll have to keep me updated. I'll have to put put my email in there, and we'll find out more about this. Maybe I'll get him to send one, and we'll try it out. And I'll report back him being the guy, I guess, that does this. I'm not sure what his name is. Anyways, uh, looks cool. So what else? Oh, hey, how about a couple things? little housekeeping. So it's been a while since I've talked about this, so let's talk about it. Um, 
If you do have guest suggestions, feel free to email me, matt at workingclassaudio.com. I try to recommend folks that have some experience and that just didn't graduate from recording school. That would be ideal. Uh, Please do not recommend yourself. I think that's kind of odd. And I... I do get a lot of emails and things, you know, people saying, how do I get on the show? Well, you get somebody else to uh, suggest you. That's how you do it. It's kind of like a referral type thing. But please don't send me an email saying, um, my manager wants me to be on the show. So talk to my manager. Uh, what else? Facebook. Yeah. If uh, if you haven't liked us on Facebook, please do so. We're also on Twitter. And we are on Instagram, so be sure and check that out. Also, if you want to sign up on the email list, I'll be honest with you, I was sending out advance notices of the show there for a while, kind of, you know, just in the workflow of things, I just kind of fell off my radar, so I stopped doing it. So if you've been on the email list and you're like, hey, I'm not getting those emails anymore, it's because I haven't been sending it out, to be honest with you. I'm busy, man, doing stuff. And uh, what else? Yeah, tell your friends about the show. And if you uh, like the show and you care to do so, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a, a nice favorable comment. And as I always say, if you have something terrible to say, I would steer clear of iTunes and I wouldn't even mention it to anybody. Uh, but that's it. Let's get down to it. Let's stop chattering here. And uh, let's talk to Andrew Mowry here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I've been a longtime listener. Well, that's awesome. I'm always shocked when people say, oh, yeah, I'll be on your show. I've, I've been listening since episode whatever. I'm like, really? Yeah, I think I might have even listened back. I think I think realistically I discovered it when you were on about episode seven or eight. Um, but I, I went back and listened to those and have I've heard, I guess, maybe half of them. I mean, there's a lot by this point, but there's definitely well-versed in the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> I think the first one I... I was like, oh, I really want to hear that. It was the Michael Beinhorn episode, uh, which yeah. might have been later. Maybe I got my numbers wrong, but... Yeah. Oh, that was that was so challenging because, I mean, I'm a big Michael Beinhorn fan and uh, it was challenging because our at the time I was using Skype and um, it just wasn't working. So I had to yeah. call him and do it over his phone and it <laughs> oh, it's like, oh my God, it's Michael Beinhorn and I'm doing this over the phone. So anyways... Anybody uh, who's new to you, so to find out more about you as they're listening to us, what what should they look up? Uh, probably just my website, uh, andrewmory.net. I also have like a, a Spotify playlist that kind of serves as my mix reel, production reel. I know. I saw that. I really like that. Yeah, it's pretty efficient. I mean, everyone seems to use Spotify right now, at least um, in 2017. You know, I'm sure it'll shift in a year or two to something more, you know, just updated or wherever the trend goes, but yeah. that's what I use now. And and that's in Brooklyn. Yeah. Where you're at. Yep. Uh, not Spotify. Sorry. You're right. in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> Spotify is not located in Brooklyn. Uh, yeah. You are based out of Brooklyn. So yeah. tell me about your, your background. I, I'm curious about the tipping point for you that where you crossed over professionally into doing audio. Yeah. So I've always been around music and I didn't study music in college. I went to Syracuse University to study film and my major is TV, radio, film. And there was a component of music that I was able to take some classes on. But my, I think the tipping point for me in terms of like making this a career was in college, I was friends with a band called Ra Ra Riot, who, mm-hmm. who went on to be a, 
you know, pretty successful touring band all around the world. And I got to be their front of house engineer right out of college. So it started with a lot of touring and mixing live sound. And at the same time, I was doing remixes with um, a project called RAC, which is a thing founded by my friend Andre. He's since turned that into his own kind of artist project, but we were originally collaborating as remixers. And so something between the touring and the remixing, I just managed to meet a lot of people and just started acquiring equipment. And I don't know, I just, I've never done anything else. I've just always managed to make relationships with musicians and find work. And what was your studio experience in that time? Or what were your first studio experiences, I should ask? Yeah. One of them sort of remains to be the most sort of awe-inspiring thing I ever have done in a studio, which was while I was still touring with Ra Ra Riot, I, they were opening for Death Cab for Cutie and, yeah. uh, their guitar player at the time, Chris Walla is a really great producer mixer. And I was a big fan of his work. He, uh, we became friends on that tour and he invited me to come with him to LA to sound city when it was still open to assist and run the computer as he was producing a Tegan and Sarah album called, uh, sainthood. Wow. And so I was, let's see, 23 years old was on like my third or fourth tour ever with the opener on a huge tour like Death Cab for Cutie, met one of my idols and got to spend two weeks at Sound City. You know, I was basically just running Logic, hitting record, doing a lot of editing, um, doing tape dumps and aligning them with digital recording. They were doing tape and digital at the same time, but mostly just kind of a fly on the wall and just doing this simple job. But it was really inspiring and insane to get to see that so early in my career. What are some of the takeaways from that specific session? Well, for one, I think it was the first time I ever, I got to be somewhere that was so historically important. And like, I didn't even know going into it quite what it was. And so that, that was a whole layer of, of something that was just really inspiring to me. But I don't know, I think it was, it was, you know, it was live tracking. It was drums. It was five people recording at once in the live room. They were basically doing a song a day, like 30 to 50 takes of a song and, and working out and tweaking the arrangements as they were going. And uh, it was just an amazing crash course in, in seeing like how a group of people record in like a traditional way, uh, which, you know, at this point in the way a lot of people engineer and produce music is a little bit lost. So that was kind of a cool baseline for me to get to see that. And just the professionalism from the studio, like... You know, it's a famous studio with great engineers and a really passionate studio manager, owner, and everyone there, everyone who was there was there to work really hard all day. And that was really inspiring. Well, that's really, really impressive. What do you think it was that uh, Chris saw in you that made him want to say, I'm going to have this guy in the studio with me for a few weeks? I think that um, he he recognized that I was a a music fan first and foremost, and that I was you know, just really into the whole process. And I had showed him a couple things I was working on on my laptop, which I had with me on tour. He saw that I was a Logic user. It was going to be his first time using Logic as the, the, you know, the quote unquote digital tape machine for this album he was about to do. Mm -hmm. And he saw that I was probably quick on the computer and hopefully I wasn't too uh, fanboy or overbearing in, in my personality. And, and he just, yeah. you know, thought, hey, this guy could probably be of help. And he seems really enthusiastic. So I'm assuming it was something like that. Had you had any experiences leading up to that that kind of taught you what kind of demeanor 
to have or how to carry yourself in the studio? A little bit. I had an internship at a studio in Brooklyn called Headgear before I started touring. So this was probably a calendar year before this Sound City experience. Again, fly on the wall, like intern making coffee, cleaning up cables. So I had that. And I, at the time, was doing a lot of forum reading. And I don't know, I I just, I guess it it, it was a little bit natural to me, but I I certainly really learned in that experience. You know, the the, the first studio internship I had was at least a taste of what it was going to be like. But I really got thrown in the deep end in terms of how important that process was and getting to see something that elaborate you know when you finish something like that it's it's a big high and when you're when you're done with it it's like oh man i i don't want this to end it's so fun and it it really drives i think a recording professional who has a successful run like that so what what did you plan on doing next what did you end up doing next i think for one like it just got my brain turning in terms of how i should invest in equipment because at the time i had only i only owned like a pre-sonus you know, fire studio or whatever it's called, the eight channel all in one box. And it kind of got my brain thinking like, well, yeah, I should probably get a patch bay and some nice pre's. And it just, it just helped me solidify the recording process and how the professionals do it and how I might choose to equip myself to do that myself one day. Uh-huh. So um, what are some of the, those yeah. equipment decisions that you made? What were they? Yeah, what were they? Like how did you um, how did you equip yourself after that? Yeah, uh it it was nicer converters, a patch bay, some preamps and some microphones. I mean it it was definitely a few thousand dollars I had to kind of go in on it all at once. But yeah, it, it was you know just the baseline um of quality stuff that I knew would hold its value and keep me keep me equipped for years to come. And a, a lot of that stuff I still have and use today. Did you um seek Chris's advice? on what to get, how to equip yeah. yourself. I emailed him quite a bit and he was very, <laughs> very helpful and gracious and helpful with all that. Um, a bit of a mentor, I, would you say? The closest thing to one that I've had, yeah. Um, him and I stay in touch. I don't quite bother him as often with you know advice for things like that, but he was of immense help early on. And this was about 10 years ago. So this whole thing took place like 10 years ago. You're 23 years old. Obviously you're 33 yeah. now. 32, yeah. 32. Tell me what's been happening the last 10 years since that session. Again, it always feels like I'm just kind of, to some degree, digging around, building relationships myself with artists. And so it's been a lot of mixing and like selective producing. Like, I really feel like I need to care about the music someone's making to want to produce it and engineer it just Mm -hmm. because it's so time consuming. Mixing is a little easier to just uh, wrap your head around and kind of do the work and and get it completed without having to sort of like schedule your life around or, or, or sort of think career arc wise about. And um, yeah, I, I, I produced a lot of records and have mixed even more. And along the way, I met a guy named Ollie Hammett, who is my manager. And we've worked together for, geez, I want to say six years now. But uh, yeah, it's just it's just been a steady, natural climb working on more exciting music slightly higher profile artists and just uh, doing my thing and bouncing around Brooklyn, you know, worked in a few spaces because Mm -hmm. it's a little bit hard to stay, (laughs) stay planted here because of rent and buildings getting turned over and all kinds of stuff like that. But uh, same old story. Yeah. I, I stopped touring too at one point, mainly to focus on the producer mixer career. 
but I did it till about 2013. Yeah. When you met your manager, what I, I'm curious at what point you were, what point were you at in your career and what was your manager's experience level? What made you decide that? I mean, that was six years ago, you say? About, yeah. Yeah, okay. So where were you at at that point? Where was he at? I think we were probably in similar camps. Uh, we were involved with talented people uh, whose art we cared about. Um, he had he was managing a couple guys. And uh, I don't know, I think he just, he, he had come across some remix I had done or something and then dug around on my website and um, might've been familiar with some of the stuff I had done but I think he just saw potential and, and equally I saw potential in him. We met for coffee. He basically emailed me out of the blue and I was definitely starting to think that I wanted to work with a manager just to help grow things. And, uh, it was just kind of one of those serendipitous, like random moments that happens. And he, uh, he just really impressed me and he felt like a friend immediately too, which was really important. And, Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. I think it was just, it's just, we were both early in our, our paths and we've stuck together since and grown together. It's, uh, I mean, it's challenging doing this period, doing, being, you know, being a freelancer, you know, being an audio professional. So definitely having a team kind of spirit, uh, team mentality really can help. I, I, I would, and you're nodding your head. So I'm thinking you're, you're in agreement. <laughs> it's so valuable. Uh, I'm also the kind of person I get a little bit inside my head too much sometimes. So it's, it's really, really, really helpful to be able to bounce everything off him and just sort of talk things out, you know, in addition to just the professional advantages where he, the delegation is in place, where he's networking a ton and sort of speaking on my behalf and negotiating deals and all that stuff that managers do. And then I get to, you know, ideally just have a little bit more brain power to, to do the audio work and everything that comes with that. Do you ever feel that it's a challenge to have somebody else represent you? It has never felt like a challenge. In all the time we've been working together, I've never been disappointed or dissatisfied with anything that has happened in our working relationship. Mm-hmm. To some degree, it's it's just, you know, shielded from me. Like, I, I don't quite know what the conversations are that he has, but everyone always tells <laughs> me that they love him. So that there's that. <laughs> I don't want to see it. Yeah, seriously. I mean, that's kind of the point, right? Well, that's that's interesting. Um, so do you have discussions with your manager about, you know, what what's our plan of attack here? What's our approach? Where are we going to go? What what are we going to do in the next 5 to 10 years? Yeah. I don't I don't know if it it ever gets like that specific in terms of like a year plan kind of thing, but we definitely have calls. I don't know, probably a couple times a year where we just sort of like put a big like housekeeping list together and talk about big picture stuff instead of just, you know, day to day checkup. But yeah, he, he's, he's very smart in the way that he networks and positions things Mm -hmm. to uh, grow what's happening. And I think he's always got the big picture in mind and uh, I've seen it unfold over the years. You know, nothing, nothing happens quickly, but uh, a lot of conversations that we have, you know, will, will sort of land like nine months later. And it's, 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 it's impressive. Yeah. It's, it's really exciting. It's kind of a concept of planting seeds and wait, you know, slowly watering and giving sunshine and eventually yeah. it sprouts and grows into something. And I'm, I'm curious about, um, as far as, you know, he's out there doing this, he's out there networking. 
Are you doing the networking as well? I try to do that as much as I can. Uh, he's in LA, so he's, you know, he's he's doing that game. He, Even he's better. Plugged in with the labels and the ARs and the managers, and he kind of he kind of works that angle. And then I'm in Brooklyn, and you know, I do a decent amount of like going to shows. I, I, it tends to be more bands that are like friends of mine or bands I've worked with. I don't necessarily go out to like a club on a random night and like scout or anything. But, uh, you know, I try and let things unfold naturally. And I try and keep in touch with the New York based artists that I know and just let that all happen organically. It, it, it varies, you know, things go in waves, but it, it can be about half and half where like half my work is stuff that I've kind of stumbled upon and half of the things that Ollie has built for me. Or sometimes it skews in other directions, you know. I love that, you know, you being on the East Coast, him being on the West Coast. That's kind of, I like that strategy. I don't know if that was intentional by you two, but. No, he he was living in New York actually when we met. So that had a lot to do with how we got started working together. But he moved out, I think, three years ago. Okay. And I, at this point in my life, have no ambition to go to LA. I, I'm from the East Coast. I have my friends, my family here. You know, it's, I, I like it here. So I, and I, and I also kind of like, being in New York, which is a little bit underrepresented right now in the music industry, I feel like the pendulum is way, way, way in LA right now. It's exciting to me to think that things might kind of boom again here one day. Yeah. Do you think the changes in the financial landscape or the uh, the economic landscape, I guess I should say, in New York play a part, meaning that cost of living continues to rise just as it does in San Francisco? So does that affect uh, New York, you know, uh, New York City, as well as the surrounding areas and parts of New York. Yeah, it's crazy expensive. Um, but I've been here in the city for a while now, seven or eight years, and it, it definitely feels like an equilibrium at this point, um, mm-hmm. which I'm thankful for. But yeah, I, I mean, I don't know any different. So it, it would be nice to not have to pay the rent and just kind of cost of life that I have here, but I'm used to it and it feels comfortable. So you just make I'm it okay work. with it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I could see, you know, as I get older and have more responsibilities, uh, maybe heavily considering shifting away from New York, but for now it's, it's working. So does your manager actively get you work? Yeah. Um, okay. again, it, it doesn't, it's not quite that like crude of an arrangement, you know, it's like he, he really is working relationships and networking and, uh, but yeah, a lot of the stuff that I work on is like, he'll email me, he'll say, Hey, are you down to do three mixes for X artist? Uh, delivery date is so-and-so are you in like, here are the rough mixes, you know? So there's, a, there's some of that. And then there's some strategizing where we both kind of have like a project or an artist in mind that I would love to work with. And we kind of figure out how to strike up a conversation and see if there's a, a mutual interest in working together. Hmm. Um, and then there's just the stuff that comes in out of the blue. You know, where sometimes it's people that reach out to me based on work I've done and they're like, hey, can you mix my project and I'll pass it on to Ollie for them to have a conversation about money and schedule and stuff. Yeah, it's, it's kind of everything, you know, it's, it's, there's no one way that my work falls into place. I am at heart uh, a rock guy, but even I have heard of Sean Mendez. So <laughs> yeah. uh, tell me about how that came about working with Sean Mendez. So this is an example of Ollie, the architect. Um, he also manages a producer writer named Teddy Geiger. And Teddy mm-hmm. has produced and co-written, I think, all of Sean Mendez's hits to date, which is like three or four songs that have been 
on the radio all the time for the past couple of years. Teddy co-wrote and produced this song that you're referencing, uh, There's Nothing Holding Me Back, yep. which I ended up co-producing with Teddy and mixing. But it was the kind of thing where it's like, you know, Ollie had been involved in a lot of the Shawn Mendes songs through, through Teddy's involvement. And I think he he saw that this song was ripe for what I do well, which is sort of taking something that's pretty far along, but kind of hammering that final 30% magic into, whether it be additional production and or mixing. But uh, yeah, you know, that song at heart is, it's got a rock feel, um, even though he's definitely a pop pop star and the song fits in the pop landscape right now. But yeah, it's got electric guitars and it's aggressive and it's got raspy vocals and I loved I loved the song the first time I heard it. So I thought that was a really good fit and a good entryway for me into working on, you know, what you would call mainstream pop, I guess. Now, in that case, your involvement on that, uh, just so I'm clear, uh, was was it only mixing or... Oh, no, you co-produced with Teddy. Yeah, initially it, it, it was a conversation about mixing, but I think we, we all kind of realized within the first mix and first revision that the song needed a little massaging in terms of arrangement and like what was on the timeline. Mm. And so you could, you could sort of say it was like opening a can of worms, but it really paid off. I mean, the difference between where it was when I first heard it and where we landed uh, after the six of us, you know, Sean and his management and A&R and me and Teddy and Ollie chimed in, you know, it's, it was just night and day, but in terms of quality and how that song hits. And uh, it was like six weeks of work. It was, it was, 18 revisions and six weeks of like that song being at the top of my priority list. It was a lot of work. I've, I've never worked so hard on the song, but it was, it was worth every second in terms of how it turned out, in my opinion. Andrew Mowry here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. We're going to pause and I'm going to tell you about some cool Audio-Technica stuff here in this little break. Uh, you know, if you're looking for a gift to uh, get from somebody and you want it to be an audio gift, but you don't want anything radically expensive, I'm going to recommend a pair of in-ear headphones from Audio-Technica that I personally own that I absolutely love. I'm talking about the ATH-E40s. Uh, retail price is $99. And I'll be honest with you, I have tried a lot of the Audio-Technica noise-canceling headphones. And while they do the job, you know, there's just something about these, these ATHE40s that I just absolutely love. And so, sorry, AT, but I gotta, I gotta go with these. You make, you make this incredible product. So that's the deal. The, uh, the drivers themselves are replaceable should you step on them, which you don't want to leave them on the floor and step on them. The wire is replaceable and damn it, they sound good. I love them. They come in a nice little case. And like I say, 99 bucks. So, you know, if you got in-laws that are bugging you going, you know, we really need something to give you this holiday season, ask them for a pair of, of these headphones, in-ear headphones. Wear them on the airplane and you tell me what you think. I'll tell you what they're really good at blocking out uh, beyond airplane noise. I had this flight recently. Oh my God, the captain or whoever was in the cockpit would not shut the hell up. It was incredible. Just... It was almost as if this guy had uh, missed his calling. He was just like, blah, 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 blah. Kind of like what I'm doing now, except you're on an airplane and you cannot escape it. So uh, there it is. Check them out. Audio-technica.com. The ATH-E40 in-ear monitor headphones, 99 bucks. Really dig them. So let's get back into it. Let's do it here with Andrew Mowry. 
here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Now, in a situation like that, are you, you know, without getting specific, are you working on a per song basis for a fee or are you, are you billing hourly? What do you, how does that even work? Yeah, I'm not a fan of the hourly thing unless it's (laughs) sort of this like STEM making sort of stuff that I wish us engineers weren't on the hook to have to do for people. Um, You know, so it's it's a little easier to sort of think hourly on that kind of stuff. But, but even then I, I prefer to just agree on a price that's sort of like, this is what this result costs and um, I'll get it done when, when we can, you know, but in terms of mixing, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's per song. And I guess if I'm doing a whole record or a bunch of songs with a band or an artist, uh, you know, you kind of work out like a all in price, but I think it's, it's helpful for everyone to not be looking at the clock. Okay. That's, that's my preference. And it's interesting too, just, you know, I've had conversations with, uh, obviously many people about their managers and what their managers do and don't do. And there just doesn't seem to be one exact way of doing it. Like, uh, I don't think Frank McDonough of McDonough Management, who represents, you know, uh, Andrew Sheps, Joe Barisi, and a a lot of other people, I don't think Frank actually is active in getting gigs, but he does, once the gigs have been had, helps facilitate the whole thing with contracts and all of that business. So your manager is doing things in, in a way that where there doesn't seem to be like a standard way. Right. Know? Yeah. A lot of it feels creative. You know, it's like the sort of the, the relationship building and navigation of the music industry feels creative in, in terms of like how those conversations go and the kind of work that he's doing on his end. But yeah, I, I see what you mean. Like Andrew Sheps and Joe Breezy, those guys have I can't imagine how many emails they get from indie artists and whoever, uh, you know, th- their, their, their pipeline of potential work is probably way, way, way bigger than mine. So Ollie and I need to be a little bit more creative about how we build things. Yeah. And I'm, I'm a little younger too, you know, it's like, I, I haven't been doing this nearly as long. I don't have the same kind of credits list and yeah. If your desire is to work in the rock arena, if you're working on pop stuff like Sean's, do you ever think that you'll get pigeonholed into that and be like stuck in the pop world? Totally. Uh, I think about that a lot and I don't, I like doing pop music. That's cool. Um, but like I said earlier, I grew up playing guitar and I love distortion and crazy sounds and stuff that generally doesn't land in pop music right now. Uh, I guess I, feel like pop music is getting a little stranger, which is exciting. But yeah, I'm definitely conscious of not getting pigeonholed. And for that reason, I try to try to take on as much sort of, uh, I don't know, e- even if it's like in a friend's band, like an unsigned guitar band who I, I know, and they don't have any money, but they want me to mix an EP. I'll, I'll still take that stuff on because I just want to feel like I'm exercising all of my skill set. And uh, it's just, I think it's important to present yourself as having worked on a lot of material. And, and so I do pay attention to that. And okay. sometimes I turn down pop stuff because I feel like things are accumulating a little bit too much in that direction or something, you know? Now, straight up question, are you making a living doing this and do you have to seek uh, income or diversify income from any place else? No, thankfully, it's all, it's all from producing and mixing. Um, I feel really lucky to be able to do that because this was, this was the career path that I wanted Basically, by the end of college, I, I, I had sort of figured out that there were 
guys like Tony Maserati and Michael Brower and, you know, whoever, these, these sort of famous mixers and producers. And uh, I, I, from the beginning, I was like, I want to do that. I want that to be my job. And so I feel really lucky that I've been able to make it work, at least for this long. <laughs> so, you know, day to day when you get up, I mean, what is, what is in your head about staying, uh, about surviving, about making it so you don't have to go get a side gig? Yeah, I think it's just the most important thing is just to stay motivated and focused. Uh, fortunately, there seems to be enough work in the pipeline that I don't I don't often feel um, nervous about like things drying up. But mm -hmm. it's really important to me that I continue to work at the quality that I want to. And it takes a ton of energy and focus. And uh, so, yeah, like wake up in the morning, you know, I kind of have this like to-do list in my head of however many songs it is that I'm chipping away at. It could be as many as 20 or 30, or it could be six or seven, depending on the workload. Yeah. It's just sort of like any day feels too short. Honestly, <laughs> there's never enough time to get through everything as quickly as I would like to. It feels like, and that might just be my problem, but, um, it's like I said, it's been stable for a couple of years in, in this arrangement. So I, I feel like I've hit a stride and it's, it's been exciting. What do you think are some of the things that uh, not only potentially affect yourself, but could affect other audio pros or want to be audio pros that are challenges that are, uh, that could sabotage their careers? Yeah. So like things that, um, things they might not realize that set them back kind of. Yeah. Or, or things that they need to pay attention to. As you've discussed a lot on this podcast, I think gear envy can be a huge distraction and some people are really good at like buying expensive gear and shooting it out with other gear and really understanding the difference between stuff. But some people I feel like just sort of think they need to buy expensive stuff to be good at this job. And it's could, it couldn't be further from the truth. Um, and you know, this, this conversation has been beat to death, but it's important to reiterate. Um, so that there's that, yeah, don't, you know, remember that your own brain is basically, and your taste in music is your most valuable asset and keeping it exercised and focused and uh, taking risks and figuring out a way to make your work sound unique or feel unique or just be really good at customer service, you know, like being nice to people and being diligent and keeping people posted. If maybe you haven't had time to work on something and they wanted a little bit of a quicker turnaround, that all that kind of stuff's really important. You can't expect anything. You you have to earn it. You have to earn it all. You have to build your own relationships. You have to you have to be the one to be the nice person to keep the relationship alive, and you have to be the one to work your ass off to make sure that it turns out as best as it possibly can. And all the way through that process, keep the artist feeling like they're in charge. You know, because it's it can be it can be possible to sort of trample on the process, and like mm -hmm. your ego can get in the way sometimes. And it's good to remember that. The artist is the one hiring you and it's their music. You didn't write it and uh, bring what you have to offer to the table, but don't be the one who's calling the shots unless that's what they want, which doesn't, I don't know. I, I feel like all the good artists, they know what they want and, it, and it's your job to figure out how to convey that. Let me ask your advice on something. I got a call the other day. Somebody left this rambling message on my on my voicemail. I, I, I have my, my phone service uh, with Google. And so like all my messages. Well, I'm sure like many other people, they come through as transcriptions. And I saw the transcription come through and I was like, what the hell? I got to hear this message. 
And I listened to it, and this person is just, hey, it was a, uh, I was a referral, and I got this wacky thing, and blah, blah, blah. It just, it just kept going and going, and all of my red flags went up. And I thought, this could be a colossal waste of time. But, <laughs> and I, I generally am quick to, you know, very, uh, very Malcolm Gladwell, blink, you know? It's like, okay, something's wrong here, and I don't think I should get involved. But at the same time, I kind of have a- another side of me when I talk to guys like you that, you know, I just turned 48, so I have a few years on you. But at the same time, I, I see the a sense, of, a sense of openness, yet a sense of clarity as well in, in your career and in your path and, and the things you say. So I listen to you and I think, maybe I'm being too quick to judge here. So I'm curious what, if you got that same situation, what would you do? Well, first of all, yeah, the red flags would go up just as they did for you. But yeah, it's funny. Sometimes something that you thought wasn't a good opportunity turns out to be. Uh, I mean, the most basic example in the career of a mixer being you get an inquiry to mix a song and you don't like the song or you think it's cheesy or not well produced or something. And then you you give it a second and you think about what it could be and maybe you put some work in on it. And then there, there can be this moment where you're like, wow, this is amazing. Like, how did I ever think this was not worth taking on? Um, and a little easier to swallow when it's just music, whereas uh, what you're describing might have been more of like a personality thing. You know, the, the interpersonal relationship side of the work is very, a huge part of like what the job is and working with someone that you don't connect with or see eye to eye with is probably not worth it, you know? Yeah, I just, I get this sense of flakiness from the message. And and I think, you know, there was some reference to, oh, uh, yeah, we tried some other engineer. And, and I thought, <laughs> uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. I know a lot of the engineers in the Bay Area. And how bad could this person have been? So Yeah. It's amazing how know. you can read someone, e- even on an email. Like, you can just... And, and usually that clarity is present in their music, too. Um, so, yeah, you... you it's it's easy to spot when you feel like collaborating with someone is going to be a, a win. I think. What are the what are the qualities in a in a client or an artist that you look for when when those early communications are happening? You know, a lot of the work I've done has happened to be people who are local, like whether they're they're New York based or they're East Coast based, and so we work in person together a lot in terms of um, the producing and mix or uh, producing and engineering recording side mm-hmm. um and th- those are the the relationships that you know you kind of need to like really see eye to eye with someone on because you're in the room with them but i think uh just confidence more than anything you know and, and not just confidence like in social interactions but confidence in their music and when you see that they are convicted to make their art the way they want to it's it kind of pushes you to really step up your game and say, well, I need to deliver to this person because they know what they want. Um, mm. So that's always impressive. It's not required. I've done plenty of projects where it was a little bit more relaxed in terms of what the vision was and everyone was happy in the end and it was fun. But I feel like the things that I'm most proud of tend to be artists that just have a lot of drive and vision. When you're working with an artist and you start to see them go down a path that you think is a potential time suck or a bad idea do you just let them go down that path just to see where it leads or not? It's a struggle. I mean, I've, I've, li- I've listened 
to so many interviews with, you know, like the ones, we're, the one we're making right now where people preach the idea that you got to, you got to chase everything that they want to do and, and never say no. And mm -hmm. I think ultimately that is the right way to do it. But realistically, you know, sometimes you're, you're on a certain time restraint or logistically, uh, you've seen, you've seen this before and you kind of have a gut feeling that you don't think it'll work out. And so it's a toss up. Like sometimes I will, I will push back, but, but I, I think deep down, I would, I would implore myself to be open all the time. It's just, sometimes it doesn't seem realistic to do that. Yeah. Uh, but if it's sort of this like tweaky technical, Hey, can you boost two DB on the high end of, and then it becomes this thing that you're doing for five minutes when you have like a million other more important things to do. If you start to see that happening over and over and over and over again, you I sort of ramp up like the, the producer in me and, and say like, let's not think about that stuff yet. Let's just keep moving. It's a good way to, good way to approach that. Cause I was, my next question was going to be, well, how do you, how do you respond to that without like being an asshole and being like, yeah, yeah, we're not going to do that. That my worst fear at any moment working on music is that I am the asshole in the room, you know? So like, I'm very conscious of it. Um, and it's a, it's a balance to sort of respond in a way that feels like I'm saying what I mean, but I'm not rude about it. I don't know. I think you just sort of cushion sentences with, well, I think we should, you know, let's try. You just sort of keep it light and polite and like, yeah, anything's possible, but it can be tough sometimes, especially if it's like a recurring thing. Uh, what are your habits? In what? <laughs> <laughs> what are your, what are your habits uh, regarding things that keep you focused? Do you, do you smoke pot? Do you, do you run? <laughs> do you, do you shoot? Yeah. You do, do you go play basketball? What do you do? No, no basketball. I'm, okay. Basketball stresses me out. Too many dudes <laughs> bigger than me pushing me around. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's a little, you know, everything it's just a little social events, uh, listening late night on headphones at home. Finding clarity is probably the hardest part of the job for me right now. Like, I feel like I've been doing this long enough where I understand the technical side enough to pretty much pull off any idea I have in my head. And then it just becomes this enormous game of inches of like, how do I get this song that feels like it's at 95% to a hundred and that is the hardest part. And it usually happens when I'm clear and I'm, I found some way to make these habits you're referring to work in my, to my advantage. I do a lot of things like, um, you know, I'll put Apple earbuds into my phone and I'll throw the latest mix on Dropbox and I'll walk around the block or I'll, I, I try to listen kind of passively, uh, in environments that aren't my studio. And I feel mm -hmm. like I always figure out the missing pieces when I'm doing those kinds of things. But yeah, the hard work happens in the studio on the speakers and with the plugins in front of me and all the stuff that makes my brain run at like a million miles an hour. And then it it's like figuring out how to decompress where I can figure out the final, final, final nuances. Mm -hmm. So yeah, walks uh, could be riding in the car, listening to something in the car, or just being in a room that's completely pitch black and I'm lying down with headphones on. Just anything to kind of shake your consciousness around, you know, Some, just something slightly different than what everyday life feels like. To get to 100% on a tune, that's, you know, that's the, 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 I don't know, the holy grail, I guess. And it never feels like 100% until a month later after it's mastered and you haven't heard it. And then you're like, you hopefully you listen back to it and you get a little nervous. You're like, oh, what? Did, how did this go? And, and the ones that feel like 100% 
only ever feel like that a month later in my experience. It's interesting too, because I'm, I'm working on uh, some mixes, how those mixes will be assembled into either a record or multiple EPs. I have, I don't know yet, but I'm working with this uh, kind of hard rock band right now. And we're in the, I just mixed the last batch of tunes and it's inevitable. I'll sweep back through the tunes mixed earlier in the process to, to tweak them. But as I was listening to the last batch, uh, I was traveling to Colorado to uh, meet family for Thanksgiving. Those mixes that I did most recently got me really excited. I was on the airplane. I had my little, you know, my little in-ear audio technica headphones and was just like, yeah, man, this, this is yeah. really just killing it. On the way back, same mixes, same headphones. Uh, I was like starting to get a little heady about it. And I was like, are these 100% or are these at like 90%? Hmm. But on the way out there, I just, I was completely in vacation mode and letting go. And it was, and it really hit me hard. And I really, really enjoyed it. But on the way back, when I knew that I was going to get back to work, I was like starting to doubt myself again. Yeah. Oh, I, I know that feeling very well. And, and I, re- I, I don't know why this is, but I, I think just moment to moment, like our brains perceive things differently. Like, I don't know if it's a blood sugar thing or a sleep thing or time of day thing, but like sometimes music sounds really slow to me and sometimes it feels really fast. Yeah. And sometimes it feels like timing is good and sometimes timing's bad or tuning's good or tuning's out. For me, like I've discovered, especially with mixing, it's a just a game of averaging. It's like letting time massage the the mix, just embracing that. I think like I think it's Tony Maserati I've heard say a few times, like he takes three days to get mix one out the door. And I'm kind of the same way. Like, I mean, I, yes, I can get a mix to a good place in four hours, but I don't really feel confident in it and until I've heard it 10 times across two or three days. But yeah, I know, I know what you're talking about. A- airplanes can also be really interesting for oh. the way your, your brain works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that, the whole out going up, you know, wh- whether you're on the, on the, uh, the tarmac or whether you're at 30,000 feet, I mean, that can have a drastic effect on the hearing and the mind. And I think uh, being on an airplane is my favorite time to listen to music. And I don't fly that often. I don't have that many reasons to travel, mm-hmm. but when I do, I like, I really enjoy listening to music more than I do otherwise. There's something about being trapped in a seat and like, yeah, you, you got to turn your headphones up loud because it's loud and that's fun. And then, you, you know, your brain goes through some strange change because of the altitude. People always say you become more emotional watching movies on airplanes. I think the same is true of listening to music. Wow. I've never heard that. That's interesting. Really? I don't know if it's like an urban myth, but it's definitely a thing floating out there that people cry more often at movies on airplanes because of the way your the altitude affects your emotions. I have to say that the last movie I watched on an airplane was uh, the new Alien movie, and I didn't cry, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I might have laughed one. a few times, but I didn't cry. Um, yeah. I had a, an interview that's out, the, the last interview, episode 154 with James Tuttle that is out uh, this week as we are recording our interview. I've talked about health things and diet things with different people. James brought up the concept of sleep and how important sleep is. And once you get some basic gear, that'll do the job. That's where that should kind of stop. And, and really, I think 
it's very important to take care of our, our, our sleep and our diet and, and all these things so we can have that that sense of clarity with with what we're working on because uh, sitting on our ass and eating poorly and uh, sitting in a dark room all day, uh, no piece of gear is going to solve anything better than being well-rested, well-fed, and and having a, a, a fire in your belly over something. Do you have any thoughts on that? Absolutely. It's on my mind a ton. And it can be hard to sort of structure your day, especially when you feel like you have a lot to get through and you want to get to the studio early and get that first session open and get to tweaking, you know, it, but it's important to like, first of all, yeah, make sure you try and sleep as much as you can and like have breakfast and drink some water and walk your dog and like all any morning where I do all those things, the, the second I get going is so much better and it, it lasts for so much longer through the day than if I, I miss it, you know, it's really important. And, and like I was just saying, like, that's the thing that I'm trying to build about my skill set the most right now is like figuring out how to keep my attention and focus as strong as possible. And, and that, that has so much to do with it. And I remember, uh, well, the last episode of this podcast I listened to was Katie Tavini and you mm-hmm. guys were talking about that and you made reference to Michael Beinhorn and the processed sugar. And yeah, I mean, this is, this is awesome conversation for people whose job it is, is well, at least nowadays, mostly to sit in front of a computer and like listen to speakers all day. You know, it's a stationary alternate dimension that we're operating in kind of. It's like, it's so unlike normal human life. So you kind of got to like make sure you tick those boxes. So what do you do to continue to inspire or educate yourself in the world of audio? We have a lot of choices of podcasts and magazines and YouTube videos and seminars. What, what's your poison? The, the, all the videos and podcasts and Pensado's place and mixed with the masters and all that stuff is, is really abundant and like really cool that all that exists. Um, and I've consumed a ton of it over the years because it's, it's, it's a new thing in our industry as of about, what, probably six or seven years ago. Mm-hmm. used to just be forums and magazines and personal relationships. But uh, I think it's, it's important to still connect with people in person and try to find a mentor, try to put yourself in uncomfortable positions. You know, I still, I still mix front of house from time to time for friends' bands when they play live shows in New York and they don't have an engineer on tour. And I love doing that. That always like invigorates me uh, and kind of gets my brain turning in new ways in terms of how I think about music and sort of what all this is for and about. You know, it's like easy to work in the studio all day and start like objectifying music as this thing that you make for people. But like it sort of loses its like purpose in terms of how it affects culture and how people use it as entertainment. And so going to a show and especially mixing a show is really empowering and like kind of reminds you why you do what you do and how many people are into this. And uh, so there's that. And then just... uh I don't know, I guess like listening to music that you don't know or aren't familiar with or isn't a genre that you think you like. I don't do this as much as I should, but anytime I do kind of really branch out, follow someone's advice, like, you you like all this, you should check this out. Um, I feel like I always learn new things, especially if it really catches my attention and I become really into it. It just sort of opens up new, new lanes of thinking for what music is or can be. But yeah, in terms of like engineering and mixing technique stuff, I think it's also important to just try like really crazy things, just stuff that's silly that you don't think will work, but you kind of figure out how to make it work. And it's not always that the artist will be on board with it, but I don't know, every now and then they those ideas stick and and they they just remind you that 
there's no right way to do any of this stuff. And so you might as well make it interesting. I want to thank you for, for speaking to me, man. I appreciate it. Uh, I know you're, you're busy and doing stuff, so it's great to have you on. And I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that you're a listener. That that's a bonus, but it's great to have you on and hear of your experiences and and hear your point of view. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's an honor that you would reach out, and uh, this was really fun. And I I want to say that you're an awesome interviewer, and you you're really good at this. And this is like a whole new world of how audio engineering knowledge, you know, perpetuates into our culture and our industry. And I feel like this stuff's really important nowadays. Wow. Thank you very much. That's, that's, that's quite a compliment. Well, thanks again, Andrew, and uh, you take care and keep on working. Thanks, Matt. Andrew Mari here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. That's it for us today. I do want to encourage you to head on over to Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Like us, follow us, do all that social media stuff, and uh, spread the word. Tell your friends, and uh, tell your friends to go leave a nice comment over on the iTunes uh, web store. That'd be great. Until then, we're out of time. So, of course, we got to thank everybody. Uh, we want to thank our crew here at WCA, including Cliff Truesdale, Chuck Smith, and Cole Williams. Also want to thank our sponsors, Gearslets.com, Audio Technica, Universal Audio, Lawton Audio, and Focal Monitors. And hey, thanks for listening. I appreciate it. Until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.